right. Well, it is the final week of January, final Sunday, and also the final sermon in our series here, Firm Foundation, from Ephesians chapter 2. And I'll ask you to turn there one more time this morning to Ephesians chapter 2, and we will see uh, today that the body of Christ is called the habitation of God, and find out what that means. Uh, As you turn to Ephesians 2, let me remind you that next Sunday, we have a special offering uh, for our partners at the Calvary Baptist Foundation in the southern part of India, and I'll be going to India in a couple weeks to meet with these dedicated pastors who sacrifice so greatly to serve the Lord. And I know that we're just one church, and, and we can't give each of those pastors thousands of dollars, but hopefully $100 is doable if we all have a part. And $100 in southern India is about two months of income. And so if we could do that, that would really help their families, help their churches, and hopefully be able to take them a good offering. They're so grateful for the help when we go do trainings with them. Uh, also remember, as Pastor Andrew mentioned, there's a couples event coming up on Saturday, February 11th, and please register for that if you need child care. If you don't need child care, you can just show up, but if you do need child care, please register. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 19. Now therefore you no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built about upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, in this passage, we have seen uh, principles about fellowship and ministry and discipleship. And this morning, we're going to finish out uh, with the ultimate goal for the local church, which is to honor God, to worship Him. Every purpose and practice of the church should bring glory to God. We are His habitation. Today, we're going to trace what it means to be the habitation of God. Why would the almighty, infinite, ever-present, all-knowing God choose to make anything on this earth his habitation? Uh, God can do anything that pleases him. And yet, it pleases him, and he has chosen to dwell with us and in us. Now, just think about your house for a second, uh, or your apartment, or wherever you live. <clears throat> yeah, just a second. Let me do a... Didn't know if I would have to do a cough drop, but I brought one in case. Okay, I know we've got a lot of people out sick today, so be praying for, be praying for each other. Is something going around. Uh, think about where you live for a second. If I told you that next Sunday, the mayor of Caldwell would like to come and visit you, okay? And a lot of you probably don't even know who the mayor of Caldwell is, so maybe you clean up a little, you know, the mayor's coming, okay, we'll throw away the trash, you know, maybe we'll dust a little. Uh, if I told you uh, that next week the governor of the state would like to come and visit you, 
Okay, you, you might clean up even more, even though you might maybe don't even know who the governor is. Uh, if I told you that next week, a very famous person of renown, somebody you really look up to, uh, wants to come and stay at your place indefinitely, I'm assuming that you would then go all out on cleaning and organizing and preparing. But what if I told you that the God of creation wants to not only visit you and stay for a while, but dwell permanently as the Holy Spirit in your soul? How does that make you feel? Uh, for me, I, I'm amazed that Jesus loved me in the first place. I'm astonished that he died on the cross to pay for my sins. Uh, I'm flabbergasted that he has offered me the gift of eternal life, and I'm completely gobsmacked. Now, that's an actual word, that he chooses to abide in me. I know that I'm unworthy. I know that I don't always keep things clean the way I should in my heart, and yet God chooses to make me and you, if you're a believer, and all of us believers together, into a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, the origins of this go all the way back to the book of Exodus. Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt. God had parted the Red Sea for them. They walked across on dry ground. They were headed toward the promised land. And before they could go any further, God needed a dwelling place where he could communicate with them and be in their midst. And so it was called the tabernacle of the congregation. And that's what we'll see first this morning, the tabernacle of the congregation. Go back to Exodus chapter 25. In Exodus 25, first there was an offering. The people started bringing all the things that they had borrowed from the Egyptians on their way out. Uh, the Egyptians had, had given them Everything, apparently. So some of the things make total sense, like gold, silver, brass, right? That makes sense. You're going to have to buy stuff. Some of the things are interesting. Uh, goat's hair, ram skins that were dyed red, and badger skins, right? Can you imagine you're leaving Egypt, and your Egyptian neighbors are saying, oh, you need to take this with you. You're like, why would I need badger skins, Right? It's, just, it's just interesting. But they brought this for the offering. And they brought everything on the list that was needed for the tabernacle to be built. But look down at verse number 8 in Exodus 25. And let them make me, this is God talking, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments there, even so shall you make him. And, and so the first uh, piece of furniture necessary in the tabernacle was going to be the Ark of the Covenant, a gold-covered chest made of a special wood. On that case, as you read through chapter 25, you'll find that there would be a mercy seat, uh, what the New Testament calls a propitiation or a place of atonement. By the way, Jesus is our mercy seat. He is the presence of God, the perfect sacrifice for sins, and, and the mercy seat on, on which the blood is applied for our redemption. Look down at verse 21 in this chapter. 
And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee. <coughs> Sorry. There I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment of the children of Israel. So let's put this all together now. God instructed Moses to build a portable tabernacle, a tent, where the Lord would be able to dwell among the people. But it had to be built exactly according to God's pattern. Everything had to perfectly follow God's blueprint. The Ark of the Covenant would sit in a special chamber called the Holy of Holies. Only one man could even enter the room, the high priest, after he was meticulously cleansed so that he could offer to God the blood of atonement for all the people, including himself, and he could only go into that room one time each year. And if he didn't keep all this procedures and ceremonies to go in, he had a special string of bells on his robe. And if the bells stopped ringing, that means he's no longer there. And there was a rope that was attached to him where they could pull him back out. He didn't meet the requirements to communicate with Almighty God. Now, how many of you are thankful that we don't have to wear bells and ropes to church every Sunday? Right? I mean, oh, he's not worshiping the right way. Boom! Right? <laughs> there down goes another one. And the bells stop ringing. Pull him out. Okay? Uh, but this is how it happens. So, this, this lamb, this picture of atonement, pointed forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world once for all. The infinite God of creation would provide his presence, but only according to his plan. And there would be a, a visible reminder during the day, a pillar of cloud would stand above the tabernacle. At nighttime, there'd be a pillar of fire above the tabernacle. Everything that was done in relation to the tabernacle was for the glory of God. But the tabernacle was a temporary dwelling place. God did not dwell in men, but he did say that he would dwell with men. Let's talk about the second one now, the house of the Lord. Go to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, and this is about 500 years later. So after 500 years of tabernacle worship, uh, long after Israel had reached the promised land, King Solomon built a permanent structure where God could dwell if he so chose. Uh, but once again, the presence of Jehovah would only fill it when his terms were met. Okay, so go to 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse number 6. Uh, you should keep in mind that as God dwelt in the tabernacle and as God in, dwelt in the temple, it did not limit his power or presence whatsoever. God could dwell in the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, in the tabernacle, and he could still run the earth just fine. 
right? He was not limited in any way by his presence being placed in one spot. 1 Kings 8, verse number 6. And the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place into the oracle. Okay, the oracle is the holy of holies, the most holy place. Even under the wings of the cherubims. These were on the mercy seat. Uh, for the cherubims spread forth their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubims covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves at the end of the staves, were seen out in the holy place before the oracle. And they were not seen without, and there they are unto this day. There was nothing in the ark save the two tables of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass, now look at this, this is crazy. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. And so the house of the Lord, this is crazy. The house of the Lord had already been constructed. They'd been working on it for years and years and years. But it had no real purpose yet because it didn't contain the presence of God. Any temple without God's presence is just an ordinary building. And, and these verses, as, as we just read, when God's presence came in, everybody else had to go out. When God fills a temple... No fleshly presence can abide there. It is an all or nothing thing. And because God graciously maintained his presence in the temple, uh, many Jews in this time period started to think that he would never or could never leave. That his presence could only be and would only be in that building. And for this reason... Uh, they felt like Jerusalem couldn't be destroyed. It was indestructible. But God is unlimited. He only dwelled there on his terms. And he could just as easily remove his presence and allow the old building to be destroyed. And there's actually a picture of this happening uh, in Ezekiel 7, uh, where we see the glory of the Lord departs. The cherubims lift up their wings and fly away. And God's presence is removed from Jerusalem. And yet God is still with Ezekiel and Daniel and Esther in foreign lands. God chooses where his presence will dwell. And it is always on God's terms. Uh, and I want to move into the New Testament. And let's talk about how God's presence goes from the tabernacle to the house of God now to the temple of God. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And you also will want to see this one. We're going to read several verses here in just a moment. 2 Corinthians 6. In the New Testament, the believer becomes the temple of God. And the local church becomes his habitation. The Spirit of God abides in the hearts of Christians. Uh, however, as we're going to see, the terms of God's holiness remain unchanged. Okay, so just because God dwells in the bodies of men uh, and we become the temple of God, it doesn't mean that God's requirements for holiness change at all. 
Look at 2 Corinthians 6, verse number 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Uh, Belial in the Old Testament uh, talked about the group of devils or demons. Yeah, and then we keep going. Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you're the temple of the living God. If God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I'll be a father unto you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Look, if we want unhindered communication and relationship with our Father, we have to keep the temple clean. And we separate from whatever is contrary to the mind of God. And, and we separate ourselves to be used only for the glory of God. It's interesting that the wording here in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, the wording that we find in verse 16, what agreement have the temple of God with idols? And this takes us back to an episode during the time of the judges, right before Samuel was firmly established as the final judge. The high priest, Eli, this is in 1 Samuel 4, uh, the high priest, Eli, had two wicked sons named Hophni and Phinehas, and they defiled the temple with their filthy behavior. Uh, not only the, the way they treated the sacrifices, but the tra way that they treated women in the temple. It was just horrible what they were doing. And Eli didn't stop them. He just kind of looked the other way. Well, it just so happened that during their apostasy, there was a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. And, and when the Philistines, uh, right away at the beginning of the battle, killed 4,000 Israelites, there was a panic in the camp. And the elders, the people in charge of the battle, they sent some guys to Shiloh uh, to fetch the Ark of the Covenant. And so here they came in the tabernacle. They go past the high priest. They walk past all the other priests. They grab the poles on the ends of the Ark of the Covenant. They drag it out of the Holy of Holies. They carry it out to the battlefield uh, to be their good luck charm in battle. Because they trusted more in the symbol of God than they trusted in God. And so now they have the Ark of the Covenant with them. Long story short, uh, God did not honor the symbol. Uh, because God does not dwell uh, only inside of a symbol. God dwells in a symbol when he chooses to dwell in a symbol. And so, long story short, the Philistines slaughtered the Israelites. 30,000 footmen were killed in one day. 30,000 footmen were killed in one day. And the ark of God was taken. Uh, of course, there's a famous child that was born that day. Uh, Phineas, his wife, had a son, and she named him Ichabod. It means the glory has departed from Israel. And, and so Israel still had a tabernacle, but they had no ark. And so now it wasn't a tabernacle, it was just an old tent made of badger skins because God's presence was gone. But that's not the end of the story. 
The Philistines took the ark to one of their cities, Ashdod. And in Ashdod, they placed the ark in the house of Dagon, uh, supposedly the father of the Mesopotamian god Baal. And Dagon was the fish god that presented as half man, half fish. And uh, they placed the ark there in their holy site. They shut the door and they went home for the night, thinking that they had just added another god, another relic to their collection. And the next day, Dagon was fallen on his face before the ark. And they came in and thought, well, that's weird. How did Dagon fall down on his face? And, and so they set him back up and they put him in his place and they went back home and shut the door again. And the next morning they got up and they found Dagon fallen on his face again. And this time his head and his hands were cut off. Dagon! Wow. You guys, are, you guys are with it. None of the superstitious Philistines ever went in that building again. The building was permanently walked away from. It was abandoned. They didn't walk in there again. And so 2 Corinthians 6 asks now, what communion has light with darkness? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? The answer, none. The temple can't belong to God and an idol at the same time. The temple is either all for God or not for God at all. That's true in every generation. And so God's moral law says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And Jesus gave the great commandment as, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Uh, sin and God cannot dwell together. We don't get to define God's standards of holiness, but we are called to separate from the influence of this world and dedicate our lives to glorifying God. Uh, I love the quote Jesus gave in John 8, 29. He said, I do always those things that please him. Uh, when I was in seventh or eighth grade, we, we had a preacher that came through, and there was a youth conference or something. I have no idea what it was. Uh, but he preached on that passage, John 8, 29. And uh, I don't even remember who the guy was. I, I do remember that he gave this practical application step. He said, uh, go home and get some three-by-five cards. Now, this was ages and ages ago, eons and eons ago. Back in the dark ages, before anybody ever had any fun, and we didn't have any electric uh, gadgets to, to put our information on, we had three-by-five cards. And so he said, take your cards and write on each one two words, please him, please him, and then put a card uh, above your door going outside. Put a card on your mirror. Put a card above your television. Put a card here. Put a card here. He named all these other places. Now, I, I must admit, I didn't do much with it. I didn't do all the cards, but I did do one. And I put one above my bedroom door on the way out of my bedroom, where every time I walked out from that day until I moved out of the house many, many years later, I saw the words, please him. 
Wouldn't it be neat if God gave us an even better reminder than a three-by-five card or a screensaver or an electronic gadget? Let's talk about through the Spirit. Through the Spirit. In our text passage, we read this earlier, Ephesians 2.22. In whom you also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Now, I can only please God through the Spirit. Jesus dwells in me through the Spirit. I'm only separated from the wickedness of this world through the Spirit. I'll only grow in Christian character through the Spirit. This is all actually very simple. Romans 8, 5 says this. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Isn't that simple? Uh, Brothers and sisters, it is impossible for the Holy Spirit to dishonor God. And if the Spirit is leading your life, you don't ever have to be concerned about keeping the temple clean because the Spirit will keep it clean for you. But when the flesh is in charge, when we allow the flesh to take over, we can live uh, in, in a way that does not please God. And we can get outside of the will of God. We, if the flesh is in charge, we can't even please God. Romans 8 speaks to this in verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, if pleasing God is what I'm created to do, and it is, If pleasing God is what the church has been established to do, and it is, then it will only happen through the Spirit. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, uh, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so we have a firm uh, principle about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we've been told that, that we can't have light with darkness, and the temple of God can't dwell with idols. And so all these principles are clear in the Scripture. Amy and I have been married for almost 29 years. And over the years, uh, we've had all sorts of pets. And uh, when we were first married, we had uh, twin Cocker Spaniels. And uh, we had an indoor pot-bellied pig that sat on the couch and watched TV. And we had an indoor dwarf bunny that hopped all over the place, and the dogs followed the little rabbit and cleaned up after it. Uh, We added all those at the same time. Later, uh, we had a cat in our apartment, and we've had all sorts of different dogs. Uh, Autumn just got another one last week. But I'll tell you something we haven't had. And if you hear we do have it, then you will know that I've been drugged and handled forcefully. Uh, We haven't had a snake There is no way that me and a snake are knowingly living in the same house, okay? 
that house would either belong to me or the snake, but not both of us. And if I saw the snake, the house may belong to the snake. It's just I don't really, how many of you don't like snakes much? Okay, most people. How many of you actually like snakes? Does anybody have a snake that lives at your house? Okay, God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else have a snake? Has anybody ever had a snake? You've had a snake live at your house. Okay. And just fine. That's fine. You can do it however you want. But as for me and my house, we will not live in the same house as a snake. Now, it's the same way with God's temple. God and an idol cannot live in the same house. God and stuff can't both be in the driver's seat of your life. God and earthly affections cannot coexist. God and what the culture has defined as God cannot coexist. That's why God is standing on the outside of so many houses today, including houses of worship. Jesus is standing on the door saying, hey, I'd like to get back into the house. Yeah, but they won't open the door because they're worshiping a God, but it's not the one true God revealed in the Scriptures. They're using the name God, the name Jesus, the name Holy Spirit, but it's not the one defined in this book, right? The the God defined in this book, uh, he does not have any ambiguity on certain issues. He says they're black and white, it's right and wrong, this is holy and unholy, and he doesn't get into the culture wars about, oh, well, there's a gray area here, and this is how we feel in the modern times, and this is what our generation thinks. Now, God's the same as he's ever been when it comes to his holiness. Now, remember, the tabernacle had to be built on God's terms. And if it wasn't, he wouldn't dwell there. The house of the Lord, the temple, had to be built on God's terms, or he wouldn't live there. And if you want Jesus Christ to live through you, it only happens one way, through the Holy Spirit of God. It only happens in agreement with the Word of God. Now, this brings us to the faith challenge today. No matter what we do for a living, our life purpose is to bring glory to God. And in fact, that's our most important role. Uh, more important than you being a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a grandparent, uh, at your job, whatever you do, your most important role is to bring glory to God. In fact, your life should be centered around that. Paul said, uh, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. We already said Jesus He said, I do always those things that please him. It is the highest commitment possible. We can't do it on our own, but we can please God through the Spirit. Now, as you consider the temple this morning, the temple of your body, the dwelling place of God's Spirit, what do you see? Are you asking the Spirit to live in a corner of the house while the rest of the house is filled with the cares and amusements and substances of this world? 
because he won't do it. Uh, Ephesians 4 says that it is possible for our lives to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Did you catch that? It says it's possible for our lives, even though we're the temple of God, it's possible for our lives to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 says it is possible for our stubborn, sinful behavior to quench the Spirit's working in our lives. Now, that isn't referring to the loss of salvation, but it is referring to the loss of relationship and influence. We are only able to glorify God through the Spirit. And so what does God's temple look like? There are time periods in the Old Testament where the temple of God was in bad shape. Josiah showed up, King Josiah, and he had a mandate. He said, I want the temple cleansed. Right? Joash sent workmen into the temple to rebuild a bunch of stuff. There were kings that when an enemy came and they needed money, they tore gold off the temple and gave it to the other king to go away. And the temple of God was mismanaged like you wouldn't believe, which is a picture of our lives, which sometimes are mismanaged where we take things that belong to God and act like they belong to us. And so what does God's temple look like in your life? Is your life a habitation of God through the Spirit? Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning that we could be reminded that our bodies, if we're believers, have been bought with a price, and that they right now are the temple of the Almighty God through the Spirit. And so I pray that you would help us to take that very seriously and to make glorifying you what we center our lives around. Help us to honor you and follow you. We thank you in Jesus' name.